Musician Mindset is a conversation series that extracts the performance and preparation thought process from world-class musicians, leaving you with wisdom and exercises to level up your musical journey. All right, our guest today, Nick Petrillo, is a keyboardist, music director, arranger, and orchestrator based in Los Angeles. Originally from Bound Brook, New Jersey, Nick is a 2010 graduate of Berklee College of Music in Boston with a dual bachelor's degree in film scoring and contemporary writing and production. As a music director and keyboardist, Nick has performed, recorded, and toured internationally with Frenchie Davis from The Voice, David Hernandez from American Idol, and has worked with the likes of Michael McDonald, Catherine McPhee, David Foster, and Simon Fuller's Now United. He's the resident music director for McPhee International Vocal Studios, arranging and producing for artists in development, as well as entertainment contractor for Warner Brothers Studios in Burbank and Bright Horizons Family Solutions in Boston. Nick also records and tours extensively with Aubrey Logan of Postmodern Jukebox. Since moving to Los Angeles in 2011, Nick has worked as an orchestrator on TV for ABC's Revenge, Nashville, Modern Family, and 10 Days in the Valley, Showtime's Shameless, CBS's SEAL Team, and Under the Dome, and NBC's Aquarius and Reverie. Feature films Hansel and Gretel Witch Hunters and Mattel's Barbie animated features video games Halo 4 and music albums Seals, Soul 2, and Rod Stewart's Merry Christmas Baby, both under acclaimed producer David Foster. Other than that, not too much. Not too much. What's up, Nick? <laughs> How are you, Good man? to have you here, man. It's good to be in a formal interview setting with yes. you. Yes. <laughs> yeah, this is going to be fun. Yeah. This is going to be good. Be Loving good. those creds. That's great. <laughs> Thanks, man. You know, yeah. seven years only, you know? So you're wondering what the next decade's going to yeah. bring, you know? Yeah. There's yeah. a lot going on, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. So let's rewind. <clears throat> let's take it back to the beginning. Do you remember your very first live performance? <clears throat> yes. Um well, I started studying when I was f- uh, five years old with uh, the church organist at the Catholic church I grew up in. And uh, my first performance was actually at the school, the Christmas show. I did the 12 Days of Christmas. I did all 12 verses with the extensions <laughs> in front of the all, all the parentals. And, you know, I can't believe I just said parentals. <laughs> the parents and the uh, the kids at the school. So you were so like, uh, I was about accompanying s- a kid's choir or something? I, or? I wasn't a company. I was just playing. It was just you playing. It was just an instrumental thing. I was about six years old. It was probably about 1,500 people. Whoa. So, yeah. And that was all, I mean, sight reading is kind of my bread and butter these days. And that was kind of like, that whole thing was sight read. So it was like six. When I was six. You know, that was David Bauer, the the conductor, needed to take a break. You know, he needed to go get music. And he said, come down, play this tune, which I did. And uh, that was my first public performance. So, um, <clears throat> as well as we know each other, I don't know yeah. any of this like you don't backstory of you. At I feel all. like so you're going to learn a lot today. This is interesting. <laughs> um, so y- that you were able to read that because you had learned reading already from the organist at the church. Is that where you? Yeah. That? So there's this piano method called Alfred Alfred Basic Piano Method. Mm-hmm. I don't know how much of it still exists today. But um, basically, I think it's nine volumes of music, and it just teaches you grand staff and how to read the treble clef, the bass clef. Um, And he, coming from the organ background, it's a little bit different than playing piano. Piano has a lot more, there's a little bit more dynamic contrast within how you're performing it, whereas Mm -hmm. with the organ, you need to use a volume pedal. So he wasn't very good at the dynamic stuff. He was very mm-hmm. good at teaching the notes. So what I would do is I would learn this music for him from the Alfred book, and then I would go, my mom would take me out to the store and we would get these sheet music books, you know, old 50s doo-wop standards. Mm-hmm. Or um, Back then, I mean, Titanic was big, so we were getting like My Heart Will mm-hmm. Go On and Disney, you know, whatever it was. So what I would do is I'd go and sight read those for fun. Mm-hmm. And then by the time I had sight read that, the Alfred stuff was so easy. Right. So I was kind of just playing around with the notes and the sight reading grew from that, just kind of from having fun with it. So you were kind of being taught to read, but also self-taught at the same time in the sense that you were like taking initiative and doing yeah. your own thing to take it beyond what you were being taught. Exactly. Yeah. And so, t- you know, tell me if I'm getting off track here, but, um, no, there's, there's you no know, track. <laughs> yeah, the, the music theory side of it was always that, uh, that came way later. 
which is shocking. You know, as far as the sight reading, it was very technical. It would be like, you know, if you look at a key signature, you see the F sharp exists, right? right? So back then I wasn't thinking in the key of G. I was thinking these are all the white keys right. and then the F sharp. Gotcha. I didn't really learn theory until I was 11 or 12 in summer camps, and mm -hmm. that was through a different studio. Gotcha. Um, but sight reading, I, I think a lot of... I think a lot of guys who do sight reading, I think the theory comes first mostly because that's what you have to think along. You have to think in a key. Right. Um, so I had a very wraparound education. I mean, we'll get to more of that. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Mm -hmm. can, we, can we go back to that first yeah. performance? What, what what did you take away from it? What do you remember <clears throat> from it? Well, I was very very shy back then. I think I still am, but I've kind of outgrown <laughs> that a little bit. You'll disagree with that. Um, yeah, I was very, very shy back then. So I think it was more of a whirlwind. It was just like, you know, I was glued to the page. I was getting it done. And then I think my mom's probably going to listen to this at some point. But she remembers that I got up very quickly and went immediately backstage to join the rest of my class. I didn't even bow or anything. I didn't want to acknowledge the audience. Because oh, yeah. I was just very, I was very timid when it came to that. But I think part of me always, I found kind of a foundation in the keyboard. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think a lot of musicians who perform live do that as well. It's not, it's not a safety net. It's just that your instrument provides this foundation for you yeah. when you're playing. I and absolutely, every, yeah. I and, absolutely think of it as a safety net. Yeah. For sure. And everything yeah. else kind of goes away. Yeah. yeah. Until that audience, you know, acknowledges the performance. So when you got up and ran off right when it was over, was that because you were... It was just like, fear. You just didn't know what to do? Or it was you performance were, fear. Performance fear. You know. But did you feel it went well? No, oh, yeah, I think it definitely did go well. Yeah. The times when, when performances didn't go well, it was more in the classical setting. It was more when I had a recital, uh, yeah. and I had to memorize something like a Bach piece or yeah. um, Flight of the Bumblebee or Beethoven's Sonata or something. Um, I would always get freaked out that my memorization wasn't clean enough. And then when you overthink things, that's when mistakes happen. Mm -hmm. You know, and I didn't have the music there as the safety net. Right. What, so, did, what did you do in that first situation? When I when the when recital thing, got messed up, yeah. Um, well, back then I wasn't trained enough to keep going, you know. So what you would do is you'd backtrack to a certain section, you know. Most of these classical pieces they have divisions, you know. Um, so if you messed up, you'd actually stop playing and go back to the beginning of that part. Well, you'd yeah. I mean, yeah. when you're seven, you're just a little yeah, yeah. It's a little squirrely, and then right. you kind of go back and you try to find your placement again because. Right. Again, I didn't have that theoretical knowledge to right. save myself. Right. So what you're kind of going by at that level is, um, you know, the mental preparation. You know, mm -hmm. where are my fingers going? Mm -hmm. Like the muscle memory. Yeah, muscle memory. Yeah. That's exactly what it is. Yeah, yeah. But you know. moving forward, mm -hmm. the, you know, you said you didn't, you didn't, you hadn't learned to what I call play through right. the mistake at that point. Exactly. When did that occur? Who taught you that lesson? So that came after I garnered that music theory knowledge. Okay. And once you have the theoretical knowledge, it's easier to get yourself out of certain situations. That's what I realized once I had that knowledge. Because if you get into a situation where you don't necessarily remember what comes next, you can at least remember, okay, well, in this uh, development section, we go to six minor. So I know I'm now tonicized in, in if I'm in the key of C, I'm in A minor now. And you can move around through that section. You could say, okay, I remember it went from one to five. It sits on four minor for a second. It goes back to five. It'll hit back to one. So once I understood the, the, how the developmental sections of classical music worked and how the exposition sections of classical music worked, it was easier to formulate a memorization tool. Mm -hmm. you because know, you're thinking a, more big picture. You're thinking more big picture. Yeah. And I, st I carry that over till today when I'm yeah. memorizing charts. Yeah. You know, all right, well, the A section, you know, maybe it's one, four, five, and then we go to a standard six, four, one, five progression in the chorus. Maybe we have a ninth bar. We have a hold on the ninth mm -hmm. bar. It's easier to remember it based on the key you're in, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, the, and the function of the chords. Yeah. So the confidence came from having uh, better control of the situation. Yes. Um, better control over how the memorization of the music happened. And also, I mean, I'm going to go to this a lot because I believe in this. I, you need to have 10,000 hours in every situation. Sure. 10,000 mm -hmm. hours to be good at the instrument in a practice routine. Mm -hmm. 10,000 hours of performance time to get good at performance. Because yeah. performance is an art within itself. Yeah. You, know, you, could, you could be a fantastic instrumentalist 
And without those 10,000 hours in front of the audience and in front of the high stress and pressure of a performance situation, um, you will fall on your face a few times. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think you do have to fall on your face a few times yeah, growing up. part of the up. process. Because you have to understand that that audience is not going to eat you alive. Right. You know, that the audience, number one, the audience wants to be entertained. Right. They want you to have a good show. But in the unlikelihood now that that will happen, that you'll fall on your face, you need to know that nothing too severe is going to happen to you. You know, we talk about this all the time with with other podcasts that we listen to as far as um, the fear, the level of fear that you have in that moment, right? Don't you say it's parallel to getting eaten by a lion or something like that? Wasn't that what it was? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's you know, um, your brain mechanism in the performance. It's it's a I guess you could say it's like a fight or flight thing. Like right. your your primal brain doesn't know the difference between the fear of a performance and the fear of like that there's a bear in the woods going to eat you and all exactly. that. Exactly. And which is a good segue to talk about some of the the mind techniques that we have because using that as an example, your mind has to step in and intervene over your brain to be able to say you're right. just playing music and it's fun and you're not going to die. Right. You know? Exactly. Like I have a friend that says any gig uh, that you walk away from is a good gig. Yes. It's John Chalden, in fact, says that. That's a, that's a yeah. great quote. Any gig that you walk, <laughs> and you walk away from is a good gig. Yep. <laughs> so what was your process to, to get through this performance anxiety, this fear, and, and overcome it? <clears throat> well, as I got older, it was, it was more practice, better practice, and analyzation of the tunes. Um, in the classical world, it's a lot more difficult simply because it's all written out for you. Every little nuance that you're doing is written out for you. So the memorization technique, as opposed to a pop gig or a jazz gig that we do, um, there's minutia. There's not only the idea of this is an A minor chord and it's in second inversion, it's What's the dynamic quality of that? Are we in the middle of a crescendo? Are we at the climax of a crescendo? Are we giving that a staccato? You know what I mean? And each one of those notes has that function. So it's, what it really is is sitting in front of the music for hours. That's why you hear classical players, you know, classical pianists and violinists and everybody in that world, they'll pract- they will practice eight hours a day. They will sit in front of that music and they'll run passages. Um, one of the techniques, actually, I don't know how well this would apply to pop music, but one of the techniques that my old piano teacher gave me was to actually play the, the song down, starting on the last bar, and then do second to last until the last third to the last into the last and just and work on it from the back you know and maybe that is a good technique for pop because i think you know when we're preparing things even set lists let's look at the macro right when you get a set list of 12 songs you sit in front of it for an hour and a half right and you get through the first five you take a day break right and then you kind of peruse those five again and then hit the rest well now those initial five have most of the practice that you've put into them, right? right? So I think the idea behind this is, you know, let's get the ending right. Let's figure out how we're going to get through this thing, where this arc is going to end, and then build the arc from there. That's a great point. And, and I think very, something very practical for people listening to start applying is yeah. is it's important, yeah, to get the beginning of the show right, right. but you have to have sustainability throughout the show. I, I love that. So start yeah. – from the end right. and work back to the beginning. Yeah. Do you think it would be valuable for someone to, to maybe mix and match how they practice that? Maybe one day they're doing from the end of the show to the beginning and then the next day from the beginning to the end? Or are you always from the end? No, I, you know, I still keep classical music in my practice regimen. And what I do now, because I have limited time, is I do just that. I'll work on the ending if I'm really having difficulty with the coda or the mm-hmm. cadenza. Or if I'm really struggling with this developmental section where we're in a strange minor key and there's a lot of arpeggiation, I know I have the head. I know I have the front or the exposition, right? So I put that on hold for two days and I get this developmental section done. And then maybe the third day, I put the metronome on slow and I work just through there and I make sure I have it. And now I've negated the ending entirely. So now I have to say, okay, in my, cause I, I keep a practice diary now, which we should probably talk about. Love to. Um, 
I will keep in the back there when I'm working on the classical regiment, you know, 35 minutes, just the cadenza. And then the last 25, I'll throw the whole thing in metronome, just make sure everything. And that's actually another thing with classical music I should mention. Some of these pieces are truly rubato. You know, if you get into the romantic era or even the impressionistic era, I'm not saying that um, it's without time. I'm saying that, you know, those styles allow you to stretch time way more than you would if you were practicing a Bach piece or a Mozart piece. So what I do in those situations is I get a some natural common time that I can work. You know, if it's sitting between 65 BPM and 85 BPM, I'll work it at 74, say, right? And then at 74, I'll just make sure I can get those lines out. And if there's a cadenza section that I know I'm going to have to bump up to 85, then I practice that at 85 and I get that up there. You know what I mean? Because once you have the metronome, once you know where the notes are falling within the bar, then your phrasing is affected. That's actually a whole other that's a whole other topic I should discuss. When I was growing up, nobody really explained that to me. The idea of where the phrasing is within the bar. Um, because placing, obviously, placing something on the and of two is different than placing it on the uh of two. You know what I mean? And in classical music, sometimes that can get negated a little bit because of that stretching of time. Because you're not you're not on a strict you're grid not, of subdivision. Exactly. And you can, it can be a little nebulous where a subdivision is falling. Is what exactly. You're saying. Yeah. Like take the take the opening of uh, Beethoven's Symphony Number no. Five. Mm-hmm. Ba 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 ba. Mm-hmm. Right. I think if you asked a good number of people who hadn't looked at the score, you'd say, "Well, that's a triplet on beat four. Oh, I've never heard it that way. That's How are you hearing? N four N one. Good. That's, that's exactly I... what it is. Oh, interesting. That's exactly what it is. Huh. But some people would consider that because there's, number one, it's a pickup. There's nothing coming before it. Right. And until you've established the time in that first measure, yeah. you don't know where that's, you don't know what that sounds like. But I think here's another interesting hmm. thing we can get into, which is hearing retroactively. Yes. So you can hear those four first notes yes. in the clear yes. and you have no point of reference. Right. But the reason I hear it as N4, N1 mm-hmm. is because of what comes after it. Exactly. Because I think my brain is so hypersensitive to like timing to timing and to mm-hmm. like always like my radar is up of like, where is the quarter note? Where's whatever, right. you know? Right. And I'm always like, I don't even think about it, but I'm right. constantly like scanning yes. for what I'm hearing yes. of where is a quarter note yes. and where where's my pulse to reference. So when I hear four notes in the clear, it doesn't give you that. But immediately, without thinking about it, I'm listening for what comes next because that's going to give you a point of reference. Exactly. So it's not going to be four and a one, two, right. three, four and a exactly. You got to hear what comes next. Right. Because, but in a weird way, once you hear that, it can inform what you already heard in the past. Does that make sense? You're exactly right. It's a weird thing to, to talk about. It, and know? that's actually something, I mean, even when I'm taking down new songs that I'm not very familiar with, if we're starting at an odd pickup like that, yeah. once the groove is established after the intro or whatever, I'll now take that pulse to the back to the beginning yeah. immediately and make sure that what I'm hearing is right. Because you're exactly right. I mean, you'll hear re- re- retroactively. Yeah. Well, a, a classic, it's not exactly the same thing, but a classic example is Take It Easy by the Eagles. Yes. You know what I'm about You're to say, You're exactly right? right. You know what I'm talking about. You hear that first guitar note. Everyone hears it as one. Exactly. And like four bars or whatever go by. Yep. And you hear the drums come in and you're like, whoa. It's yep. like really disorienting because yep. it sounds like the drums are coming in on the and of one. Yep. And then you have to know where one is and then go back. You know There's what? There's a Zeppelin song like that too. Yes. Um, you have to go back. And then even to this day, I know that intellectually so well yep. and it's like instinctively so hard for me to hear it that way. And I have to start yep. going like two, four, you know, telling you, myself where two and four is. It's so weird. Yeah. Do you know what mine is? What? Hold the line. Hold the line. Yeah. Okay. It's that piano intro. Oh yeah. 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 It's just always gets me whenever it comes on, on the radio. Yeah. And I think it's the accenting on the piano that gets me. Yeah. But once it locks in with the, with the drum groove, it's completely, we're completely safe. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. The, the obvious Zeppelin one is rock and roll yes. drum mm-hmm. intro that nobody can count. Absolutely. Until you know it. Yeah. Once you hear it, you hear it easily. Yeah. But until you can understand what it is. I think that's one that you actually had to explain to me at one point. Yeah. That's I a, it's a commonly yeah. misunderstood one. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. 
Can we go to your practice log? Yeah, please. That sounded really interesting. Well, yeah. Describe what that is for <clears throat> well, Recently, uh, I'd say within the last month, I really started journaling really everything. Everything that's been happening career-wise and not, not only to keep my career on a good path, but also to keep myself um, organized as far as projects because the projects are getting a little crazy. But in the back of that, I keep a practice log. I keep, basically I have it divided because I know personally I'm only going to have about an hour and a half to practice a day. I mean, and that's a good day. You know what I mean? And I'm talking personal growth practicing. I'm not talking learning for shows. I mean, that's a given. Um, but as far as personal growth practicing, I will, number one, keep a notes log of things that I need to personally work on, things that I'm hearing in the moment that I just, I need to tackle these at some point. So that list keeps going. It's almost like a to-do list of, of practice. And then next to that, I keep my fundamental technical requirements, you know, which for me is running scales at certain rhythms, at certain BPMs. It's running things in, in um, contrary motion. So running my scales parallel and then spreading out in the second octave and running contrary and then running back parallel. Um, I continue to run arpeggios. I continue to run two five exercises to improve swing. I mean, that's just something I personally do. It's very fundamental, but setting the, setting the metronome at even 60 BPM, trying to keep that on, on a, on a, constant two and four and then setting that thing all the way up to 140 you know which would be at at 280 and just see where i sit in the swing on all those and i do the same thing with walking because you know what as as a solo pianist too i need to keep those chops up not only with stride but with walking and be able to keep a a consistent motion in in the left hand so i do practice that so i'll the the as far as the swing two five walking thing, I may keep about twenty minutes on that just for upkeep. So we're about right now we're about forty minutes in. So twenty minutes scales arpeggios, twenty minutes on that, and then I move into classical. I immediately go into that realm, and I'll do. Right now on my desk, I have the Well Tempered Clavier, which is Preludes and Fugues four part. And I also have two part inventions. So I just choose one at random. I mean, at this point I kind of, I've worked on them in my youth and I kind of know them. So I'll just, I'll literally open the book and see what's available. And that helps with sight reading and it also helps with technical chops because fingering those Bach pieces is really difficult. Um, And in strict classical sense, no pedal is allowed. So it, it actually improves on organ chops too, because you have to make sure that you're gracefully getting to each one of those notes without the use of a pedal. And you don't have that option on organ either. So just the, the dexterity of getting to notes without pedal. Um, and then also the sight reading chops of that. And then usually I'll work on something, I don't want to say for fun, but something that I'm trying to stretch myself with, like a Ravel piece, or part of a list Hungarian Rhapsody or something. I'll choose some 20-bar section and just get that down. Because the fact of the matter is the classical music, I don't make a living at it, and I'm not. I'm probably not going to ever do a recital again. But those chops are super important, for me at least, to have. Um, and it's, just, has, it helps with your overall like comfort level on the instrument and your technical. You know, it helps with that. It helps more with the sight reading, the the Broadway stuff I do. If I have to sight read Sond, if I'm in a situation I have to sight read Sondheim, um, it just makes you look at music with a more determined eye, mm-hmm. rather than just looking at slash notation or rhythmic notation inside of a chart. You know so, what I mean? so to zoom back out a little bit, yeah. Like in a perfect world, it sounds like a a good amount of your practice time is focused on maintenance. Yes. As opposed to like tackling an hour and a half of brand yes. new stuff. Right now it is. Yeah. And then that last, that last 40 minutes, I'd say when I'm on a roll with the day mm-hmm. is that it's tackling new ideas. Mm-hmm. Cause at that point I'm warm. I'm, I'm, I'm alert. I mean, you know, I'm not a morning person. You don't know this about me. But when I'm doing this at 8 o'clock in the morning, I need a cup of coffee near me, and I'm just working mm-hmm. stuff out. So after the initial 45 minutes to 50 minutes, 
I'm really ready to start listening and doing a takedown or whatever I need to do in that moment. Mm-hmm. You know, any polyrhythm things I need to tackle or mm-hmm. over the bar line situations, or if I'm working on something that has a bunch of odd bars in it or odd time signatures, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. At that point, I'm really ready. Because the way I look at it also is I look at it, you know, the Babe Ruth, before he goes up to bat, before he went up to bat, used to hold three bats. You know what I mean? Right. You get the weight of all three of those in your arm. And then when you right. get up to bat, it's, you know, you're loose. You're ready to do it. Right. And for me... Uh, so like the classical stuff is like the three bats. It's it more, is. It's more than you'll ever need, but it's getting you ready for exactly. what you're going to do. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Do you, do you subdivide your practice time? Like down to 10-minute segments? I do. Segments? I mean, it's all it's all in there. If you actually look at it, it's I, I, I set a limit now to everything. I think my scale time is up to seven minutes or something like that. And then three minutes on arpeggios. And, wow. Very specific. And it's very, mm-hmm. it's very specific. It's... It, yeah, the up the upkeep really is just so that I have the dexterity when I need it. Right. You know? It's just like an athlete. Yeah. Yes. I, like you were saying with Babe Ruth. Yeah, I'm yeah. with you. And, you know, the, the other issue, and I think you run into it, you probably run into it as well, is it's not even about tackling the, the line anymore to get the notes out. It's about the phrasing of it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I think we're beyond the blatant mistake. Mm-hmm. And we're more on to, ah, I just didn't, I didn't place that correctly. Right. Do you know what I mean? Yep. A lot of the things I personally beat myself up on are the placement, my release of notes, how staccato I'm making things. Mm-hmm. And that's where the upkeep, when I'm really in an upkeep phase two weeks in, by the end of those two weeks, I just feel like my texture on the piano and the way I'm approaching the notes is way different than when I'm waking up and playing for five hours shows and sight reading and transposing and all, everything else I'm doing for my job because the stress and everything burdens you down. And that hour and a half of practice with your instrument is really, if you want to look at it like a marriage, it's really mm-hmm. the time with your spouse. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's the time you're not you're not using the instrument for your benefit. Right. It's the time you're actually connecting with it again on a level that you loved before you started this yeah i think that's a common analogy that being a musician it's just like any other relationship that you have to devote time to the relationship if it's going to be a good relationship exactly yeah absolutely can we rewind to something you just said yes to bring it back into mindset stuff a little more um you're talking about beating yourself up over things (laughs) you want to go down that rabbit hole (laughs) (laughs) well i think that's important because yeah i know you've been on a journey yes combating your own tendency to beat yourself up overly over things right and i think that's going to be a really valuable thing for a lot of people listening i think that's pretty common yes that uh, of course we're all our own worst critic and all that but there's a fine line of being productively critical and like overly beating yourself up about things yes and I think you don't mind me saying there have been many shows on tour where yes. we walk off stage and everyone is like, that was an awesome show. That was so great. And you're like, oh man, I sucked. That was horrible. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And you're beating yourself up. And yeah. we've, so you and I have had a lot of conversations along these lines and I think you've come a long way in that regard. Yeah. Would you agree? That, I would absolutely agree. And I think it's, uh, it's all, it's been cool for me to see like the personal growth in you and in yeah. your mindset of playing music and how you, uh, how you experience things and how you hear things and how you, you know, like the self-confidence plays into it and all of that. And so I think it would be great for people to hear a little bit of your story uh, on that side of things. Sure. Um, Well, where to begin on that? Because I've always, like I said, I've always had confidence issues, you know, as far as the, um, that very first recital. And I I think it just came from the tentativeness of my personality, Mm -hmm. which as I've gotten older, and I think as I've gotten more into the music realm at Berkeley, mm-hmm. even where you're around people of your own nature, you kind of um, you open up more mm-hmm. into who you are. But I'll go I'll go more into into, you know, <clears throat> uh, I, I am a self-proclaimed workaholic. Mm-hmm. I am. And I think that has a lot that did have a lot to do with my confidence issues, because what would happen is I'd work myself to death and I'd be exhausted and then i'd try to go and do a show 
And what happens at that point, not only are you creatively drained, mm -hmm. but you're physically drained. And your mind is not working at the alertness level that you need it to. You know, to speak in production terms, you have a lot of latency. Mm -hmm. uh, and especially in the jazz realm, each millisecond counts mm -hmm. because you're responding. Right. So when you're doing a jazz show and you're tired and you can't think straight, yep. you're missing changes, you're missing all kinds of stuff. And to the naked ear, I mean, it doesn't it doesn't sound off. Mm -hmm. It really doesn't. To you in the moment, it sounds very off. Right. Um, so I think what was happening to me was the, the working myself into oblivion was killing me. Right. Really. Just and how creatively. recently are we talking? Like a year ago? Or yeah, well, we're talking seven months ago okay oh, really recent, yeah yeah no i was i've been i've been working very very hard since i got to la just to make something happen um and i think what what i started to do is i started to change my mindset i started to say okay number one i need nick time i need downtime with people i need to establish these you know true lasting friendships and not just working relationships and that was the first thing. The second thing was I need to set a cutoff for work. I need to. Because the thing is, these projects will continue to come in all the time. And no matter how fast you get the earlier one done, you're going to have another one to eat up your time. And all you're really doing is pushing the log back on yourself. As opposed to saying, okay, I have a project due in two months. Let's spread this out. Let's figure out per week, what are my goal points? And I started doing that. I started saying, okay, well, I need to get three of these charts done. And then it's leaving my mind for this week so I can make room for everything else. I'll do three next week. You know what I mean? And you make time for that. Like you make time to take a shower, you know, whatever. You set that time aside for that. And um, <clears throat> through that, I was able to set a, a nice six o'clock cutoff time for myself. And because of that, I was able to eat at a decent hour. I was able to get to the gym after dinner and I was able to sit down for an hour, decompress and actually fall asleep at 11 o'clock like a normal person. So I started getting the cycle, which is something that you and Aubrey and I had always talked about is it's getting yourself into some type of routine so your body can central, centralize itself yeah, a little yeah. bit. So you feel that going through that process of getting your schedule more under control got you more clear headed like back to the self-critical thing of the performance, mm -hmm. like it got you more clear-headed to where you changed how you were thinking about your playing or you felt you were actually playing better or both? I think both. Okay. I think it, it, it helped my playing significantly. You know, my playing style increased because I was able to make time for it. And I wasn't beating myself up for how draggy I was as a person. Right. Because what I was doing is I would judge myself on things in a show because of my mood. Right. That makes sense. There were certain shows on tour that I was just so overly exhausted yeah. that really nothing would have made up for the fact that I was already in a bad mood about it. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And um, I think another thing I've, and, and I please don't take this the wrong way. What, I, what comes out of my mouth next? I am a perfectionist. There is a side of music that works better without perfection, okay? And what I mean by that is not everything needs to be 100% right all the time. In fact, there's a lot of beauty in those idiosyncrasies, in certain intonation issues in the horns, in a slight movement of the voice from pitch center to a few cents flat. There's a beauty in that. And the reason I feel that way is I've done enough recordings in my youth where I have tried to lock drums to the grid and lock bass to that, click drum, uh, to, to that kick drum and make sure that there were no idiosyncrasies in the guitar part, that every one of those octaves was perfect and it was looped and it was sounding good, and that the piano part was exact and the voices were tuned. And what you get at the end of the day is a computerized recording. You've taken all of the magic out of that. Now, the reason I mention that is when I'm in the studio and, I'm, and I am, quote unquote, producing myself or judging myself or whatever you want to call it, now I look at it from the listener's ear, 
from how this is going to sound three years down the line. Almost more is like this, from an emotional standpoint. Is like this how a going to hit somebody? Is this yeah. a performance? Yeah. Is this something I'm proud of that connects with the song, as opposed to did I voice that G chord correctly? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean. Well, and I, w- I would want to clarify. I agree with everything yes. you're saying, but I would also want to clarify, like for for people listening, yes. who are maybe really striving for metronomic perfection, perfection. and being on exactly. the grid and all that. I agree with what you're saying, but I think we should also clarify that we are not saying that that's not a goal. Exactly. It's almost a thing, and Aubrey talked about this yes. too, where you have to get yourself to be able to play pretty metronomically perfect. Yes. In order to go away from that, because I also would add to what you're saying that there's a difference between someone who has a high uh, amount of technical skill and accuracy and very much can play on the grid when that's what's called for. Yes. And then they artistically choose to go away from that and put a little grease on it and all that. That still is a different sound than someone who's just like a quote unquote sloppy player and can't do the other. You're exactly right. And I'll, I'll expand upon that because performance is different than technical accuracy. You know, when I'm in the studio recording with somebody, I'm not thinking anymore about that technical accuracy. I'm thinking about the performance. I'm thinking about the evolution of the song. That technical stuff is happening in an hour and a half of practice I'm doing. And that's always never in practice sessions do I say that's good enough. Ever. Never at that point. I'm always striving for perfection. And I know, I mean, we'll be 85 years old and I'll still be trying to figure stuff out. But when I'm in the studio, I can't be thinking like that. I just can't. I mean, what comes out of me is where it is, where I am at that point, or where the song is. Do you know what I mean? That's interesting, too, because a a lot of people will say in the studio they are more technically mindset oriented in terms of perfection and things like that. I used to be like that. And I remember when I first started doing sessions, I was so hung up on like, yep, I have to hit the snare drum in the exact same spot, every snare hit for the whole song at the exact same volume and all that stuff, which is all true, but you can't be thinking about that. And I think what you just said is an excellent point. You do have to be able to do that, but you have to do it in a practice session to where it's becoming internalized. Exactly. And uh, and I would even add to that, like something I tell students a lot is the difference between like a studio mindset and a live playing mindset is that I always say I try to bring the energy of a live performance into the studio and I try to bring the precision of the studio performance into a live performance. And it, I feel that I at one, it, you know, at some point got to a place where I don't think any differently anymore because I'm trying to do all of those things all the time. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yep. I think some, something important to note for people listening right now is that the opposite can happen as well because you guys are both talking about like technical proficiency and that, you know that's where you started. You were just mentioning the snare drum. I was on the opposite end of the spectrum when I was coming up. To me, it was always about you know writing something or like being artistic with it and the feel. And then as I got deeper into my career, it was more about no, I have to be precise. And even now, like like my my thought pattern when I'm playing is. How accurate can I be with everything? How on top of the theory? How, and you know, so both we you come from two different angles, but you reach the same pentacle, mm-hmm. yeah, right? Yeah. Which which is just uh, forward motion in your musicianship, exactly. right? So yeah. if you're if you're listening to this, and you know, this has been a, a very theory heavy conversation, and yeah. your head's spinning a little bit, just know that you can you can still achieve what what uh, you guys are talking about, yeah. right? If you're coming from a different angle, right. it's okay. It's just uh, like the the real theme is that you just keep moving forward, just keep progressing, and just trying to push yourself and look for those areas that you can improve. And you know, everybody's has a different musical journey, but as long as our end game is trying to be the best that we can possibly be then however we get there is how we get there. Well, Michael Gervais, who we both listen to a lot, which is a podcast I recommend for everyone. Finding, finding Mastery. Mastery is what it's called. Yeah, Finding Mastery. He's the uh, sports psychologist for the Seattle Seahawks, and he says that, I forget which is which, there's him and the coach, and one of them says there's no such thing as a big game. In, in terms of the player's mindset, right. there's no such thing as a big game. It's all just go out and do your thing. And then the other one of them says every game is a big game. Every single play, every single play you make, every single game is a huge game. 
and every game is the Super Bowl and this and that. And they have totally opposite ways of looking at it. Yeah. I like what you just said. They both do end up in the same spot, which mm-hmm. is you're achieving like a consistency of performance and you're mm-hmm. achieving a consistent high level of performance. Right. And it's probably based on different people's personalities, what works better for, for them. Right. I think that's a nice segue here because one of the, the overarching themes I'm, I'm hearing from you today yeah. is uh, your ability to self-reflect yes. both in your musicianship and what we were just talking about, like you as a person. So how, how can someone cultivate that skill? Because from what I'm hearing from you, it seems like this is just like your natural gift and ability <laughs> to, to do that. And it, and it is, yeah. you know what I mean? Re- it really is um, yeah. because there are a lot of people out there that don't even realize that they're not doing that right you know so how how would you recommend a young musician out there to start uh, how would you recommend that they they could begin this process of thinking more internally and and looking not only at their musicianship but their lifestyle um and carry that forward into their career of constantly auditing constantly looking in how they can become better well i would say as far as music uh where i where that started happening for me was where I started recording for myself and that happened at a young age. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, set up a voice memo on your phone or if you have pro tools or logic, open it up during your practice regimen and just press R or three mm-hmm. or whatever it is and, um, and see what happens and see what you hear because, Here's another thing with the confidence to border on the confidence thing again. What you're hearing when you're playing is orally different, orally different than what you will hear as a listener. Um, what you're feeling in that moment has a lot to do with how you're approaching those things. So I could never be honest with myself until I heard myself on tape. And when you hear yourself on tape, you say, oh, man, I'm, I, it's really jagged. Mm-hmm. The way I'm approaching that is really jagged. So now, when I, even when I'm playing a staccato, I have to, and I'm still doing this, I had to flip my mindset that that staccato needs to be held a hair longer on the piano than my taste is mm-hmm. for it to sound on a recording the way I want it to. So I needed to now flip my mindset onto what the listener is listening to. So record yourself and keep track of those. Get a hard drive and keep those files and go back. I mean, 2018 now in 2020, go back and listen to where you are, where you were here and where you are now in 2020. I still have recordings of myself from Berkeley that I'll go. You have to report to you from time to time. You have to. So I just want to bring up to zoom way out here. Mm -hmm. Every single conversation we've had on the show with every different person so far has taken a very different path toward getting here, but it's all gotten to this exact point. I think every single person has said, record yourself yep. as one of the most powerful, most bang for your buck, yep. best ways to grow as a musician. Uh, and as far as, and I'm only a month into this whole diary thing, you know, mm-hmm. as far as re- recording my days, but I can already see that down the line, having a recording, a written recording of where I am right now is going to be beneficial to 2020 Nick reading back to that. Mm-hmm. Um, and recording I think your days, that's really recording cool. your yeah. days, man. Yeah, and, and, you know, like we all have iCal. I live by my iCal. Yeah. I live by my mail app. Yep. But those are fleeting. And, in t- you know, I can't look to what 2016 looked like. I mean, Apple's not saving that. You can actually make it save it. I save mine. Well, <laughs> We'll See, this is, <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, but yeah, as you, far as the self, the self reflecting thing, I, I think that has a lot to do with it. Um, I, I guess you can say it's a gift. I look at it as a little bit of a curse because I think that's where the confidence thing stemmed is this constant self reflecting and constant, uh, pessimism as to who I am as a human being. But I think as far as somebody trying to reflect, I think I think writing things down is the way to go. I mean, you know, you will know where you are, where you're coming from. You can put all of your emotions into it from at all of your raw emotions. That's where your psychology lies. Mm-hmm. That's where your issues are. Where you are when you open your mind and you start writing, 
Those are the things you got to deal with. What would be one thing someone could write down? What if like they're, they're hearing this and going, all right, I, I, I get it. I need to record myself. I need to write this stuff down. But that just sounds like a whole lot. Yeah. Like, what is one very small practical thing that somebody could start doing today? For their life? Both. Well, I'd say for your practice regimen, it's just one thing that you really dislike about your playing. Just write it down immediately without thinking about it. What is that one thing? And now you know that one thing is the first thing you got to tackle because that's what's driving you down. That's where you're losing confidence in your playing. And once that's tackled, then you get number two, you get number three. And you do the same thing in your life. If you're not happy with, um, I mean, I wasn't happy with my sleep schedule. That was number one. And I said, okay, well, that needs to get tackled because it's a, it's really obstructing Nick as a person. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you tackle it. You, f- you figure it out because your life, man, um, that's <laughs> – you are the music. You are the one creating the music. And if you're not happy, your music is not going to reflect happiness or it's mm-hmm. not going to reflect joy or um, success or any of those things. You know, you as a per, I just watched that Quincy documentary and I'm probably mm-hmm. falsely quoting him right now because it's a lot of what he said is in, stuck in my mind. But it's that's that same concept of you need to be a whole person in order to create whole music. Mm-hmm. You just do, you know, and again, to the confidence thing, that was my main issue was that I was really I was just struggling with a lot of things trying to get them balanced and to stay there, mm-hmm. you know, because it, like I said, I'm a workaholic and work will shift me right. real quick. You know, the project dictates how I live my life. And that mindset, when I really found made a foundation for myself in Nick, mm-hmm. that's when the projects, even though they took a, a secondary, um, they took kind of like the back burner yeah. from my life they became more creatively successful because Nick was found had a foundation. Right. So I want to rewind to something. Yeah. I don't know if you said this or if my brain made its own connection yeah. that I think you said this. When you were talking about your journal and you referred to that as recording, yes. I know I understand you mean like recording yeah. your time and all yeah. that, but it kind of made an interesting parallel for me of like you can reflect, like when you have your your life written out mm. journal wise, yeah. you can reflect on it and improve your life the same way you can reflect on an audio recording and improve your playing. Yeah. Is that yeah. what you meant? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, That's yeah. great. Yeah. Cause you're getting it out of here. Yeah. I've never thought paper. of it like that. I've, no, I've never thought of it like that. Yeah. Really Here's all the, I think Aubrey talks about this uh, over here. It's just pollution. Yeah. It's just all these ideas that are circling your head and clouding you. Whereas if they're on paper, just like your to-do list, your reminders or whatever, however we deal with every day, once it's on paper, I forget about it. It's like emptying your trash on your computer. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Mm -hmm. this week alone, I have five projects. And if I was trying to circle them in my head, I'd go nuts. I made a, I literally sat down, took me 30 seconds. Mm -hmm. I said, this is most important. This is second most important. This is third. This is when they're due. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And then you wake up in the morning and you say, okay. I'm going to get these done. And here's another thing with the journal that's really been helping me, man. And actually more so with the confidence than anything else is once you get that done, reward yourself for it, man. Don't say, oh, I got one done. I got seven more to do. No, you got your daily. You got your Tuesday done. Mm -hmm. This is what you set out to do on Tuesday. Reward yourself. Turn the computer off. Go spend time with friends. Grab a beer with somebody have dinner with somebody, whatever, mm-hmm. but don't try to tackle the next thing because then you're going to get halfway through. You're going to say, ah, I didn't get everything done. No, you worked eight hours that day. You got what you need to get done. But done. you're able to do that because you've mapped it out in a way that you yes. can accomplish X on this day Absolutely. and still hit your target two yes. weeks from now or whatever. Yes. Man, and the that. power of That's no awesome. man and the power of no. I mean, listen, if you are full on and you can't take on something else, mm-hmm. don't say, oh, I have two more hours in my day to get it done. No. Right. You don't have time, man. And saying no doesn't mean it's not going to come up again. It just means you can't, you literally cannot do it this time. Yeah. You can't. Yep. That's good. Nick, powerful conversation. Oh, yeah. <laughs> man. This has been great. Yeah. Sure. So as we bring the, the boat yeah. the boat back into dock here, um, Young musicians out there, yeah. um, you know, maybe they're just starting their career or they're just getting into music college. What sure. is what is one thing you'd like to 
leave them with? It is a long road with no end. It really is. Music is a way of life. And you need to love this path because you're going to do $100 gigs that you really don't want to do. And you're going to do X amount, you know, X amount of dollar gigs that you are really, really proud of. But in the end, and I talked to Dave about this, in the end, you have to be true to the music because the music is, that's all that stands in the end. Do you know what I mean? Every one of those projects needs to be 100% about that. So when you're going to college, I mean, perfect the, the technique, perfect the theory as much as you can. Everything about your musicianship, don't get lost in the sauce. Make sure that you are staying true to yourself as a musician. If you are a rock and roll guitarist, be a rock and roll guitarist. Don't let anybody sway you into thinking you should be something else. If you find that path yourself and you fall in love with it, then you should absolutely do that. I'm not saying, you know, but don't let people's opinions about you or your playing stray you from your path. Because really, I mean, <clears throat> it's, it's all about staying true to yourself, man. It really is. It's a hundred percent about the music and staying true to yourself and just, you know, it's a fun little journey, man. It's an adventure. It's like Indiana Jones. And I love it every day I wake up. So yeah. awesome. Yeah, man. So where can people find you? Uh, well, on Instagram and Twitter, it's uh, at Nick P Music, N-I-C-K-P-M-U-S-I-C. Um, I have uh, my website's fully up and running, www.nickpatrillomusic.com. Um Last name is P-E-T-R-I-L-L-O. I'm on Facebook. I have my Facebook page, Nick Petrillo Music. Uh, I'm on YouTube. You could probably find me in a lot of videos with Aubrey and Dave over here. And uh, I think we're going out on the road in about three weeks. So yep. you could find us on the road as well. Yep. October 26th October in New York. In New York City. Yep. And go to, let's just give Aubrey a little shout out. Yes. AubreyLogan.com and all the tour dates. And you can find us there too. Exactly. Yep. Well, another very, very valuable conversation, and we're all better yeah. for it. This has been really, really amazing. Thank right. you so much. Thank you for having me, guys. Uh, you guys it. listening, just keep walking, and thanks again for listening. We'll talk to yeah. you soon. listening to Musician Mindset Podcast with Dave Johnstone and Jason Land. You can contact the show through Facebook and Instagram at Musician Mindset Podcast. If you like what you heard, please leave a written review and a five-star rating on iTunes.